This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. A new report finds three quarters of us are worried about financial security, especially when it comes to aging in place. We'll talk about what to do. And some cardiologists warn that new guidelines on low-dose aspirin could do more harm than good. We'll clear the confusion. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Surgeons in New York have successfully transplanted a kidney grown in a genetically altered pig into a human patient and found that it worked normally. They implanted the organ in a brain-dead patient who was kept alive on a ventilator with the family's consent and then followed the body's response. It's a breakthrough that could one day offer a vast new supply of organs for severely ill patients, but testing them raises huge ethical issues and questions about the long-term consequences. World Health Organization this week honored Henrietta Lack, the black woman whose cells were infamously taken without her knowledge for scientific research in 1951. Her cells, commonly known as Hella cells, are the only known human cells that continue to stay alive and reproduce outside of the human body, and they've been used for decades in medical discoveries and life saving treatments. Hella cells are valued anywhere between $400 and thousands. Her family continues to fight to protect her legacy, and just this month, her 87-year-old son and her estate filed a lawsuit against a pharmaceutical company for selling her cells, earning the company $35 billion each year, while her family has never received any compensation. London has more statues of animals than women. The first-of-its-kind audit of public sculptures and monuments in the UK capital found of the 1,500 monuments, only 4% were dedicated to named women, with only three sculptures of women out of 50 dedicated to women of color. Yet the number of sculptures that feature animals, almost 100, is double that of women. The findings come as Mayor Sadiq Khan announced funding to ensure the city's landmarks and monuments better reflect the capital's diversity. The thing that we want to primarily assure is that every kid is going to be safe on this bus. That's a former top FBI official on his new job, driving a school bus. 63-year-old Mike Mason, at one point the fourth highest ranking official at the FBI, spurned retirement and feels like he's doing important work. After retiring from the FBI in 2007, he worked for Verizon as chief security officer until he retired again in 2020. Then he read about a chronic shortage of bus drivers in Virginia and decided to send in his resume. 
He got a perplexed message asking why. Amid the pandemic, thousands of bus drivers quit or retired, complaining of low morale, pay, and poor conditions. Mike says he's smiling every day he starts up the bus. You'll Never Walk Alone has overtaken Frank Sinatra's My Way as the most played funeral song in Britain. The 1960s version by Jerry and the Pacemakers has been played at an estimated 9,500 funerals in the past year. It's been covered by many, including the late Sir Tom Moore and the National Health Service Choir. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Will you have enough income for a comfortable retirement? Have you taken the cost of aging in place into account, especially if you need extra care? The National Institute on Aging says the answers to these questions is a resounding no. And Bonnie Jean McDonald, the director of Financial Security Research, has some suggestions. What's kind of happened through the pandemic is that Canada has become more aware, really as a nation, that our long-term care system is not a guaranteed service under the Medicare system, like hospitals and doctors. And this made people more aware of the fact that, for the most part, um, when people actually do get older and they develop chronic care needs, a lot of the time people either are paying out of pocket or they're actually being cared for by their own families. And for those who really do need to go into a long-term care setting, uh, that can be quite a process. And there's actually about a 40,000-person waiting list to get into those long-term care settings. And this is really because of what happened throughout the pandemic, where there's just such a light shone on all the systemic problems within the long-term care system itself. It really made Canadians, retired Canadians, more aware of what the system really does look like and really honestly what all, all the deficiencies that there are. Well, we've seen previous surveys that says that that have found, especially because of the pandemic, that people don't want to go into long-term care. Hundred percent. I mean, we saw we did a study recently where we found that sixty percent of Canadians, so the people who kind of were on the fence before the pandemic, basically have now pushed them over. They and basically we found unanimously nobody wants to go into a long-term care home. Uh, but of course. There are people who do eventually, and that's because they just have such a high level of need and they just, it's not safe for them to be at home. So until you really need it, most people say they do want to age at home. And I think the, the unfortunate truth for Canada is that we just don't have a system that supports aging at home. Um, the funding is predominantly put into the nursing home system, uh, and the funding in general, it's quite a bit lower than OECD countries. So this is why I think Canadians are beginning to realize that for them to actually age in home in the way that they'd like in their, you know, their 80s and their 90s, uh, they'd have to do it from their own private resources. And this is why being financially prepared is is becoming uh, such a major topic for seniors. But most people are kind of unaware of the costs and haven't taken it into account in whatever financial planning they've done for retirement. Yeah, I mean, it's 
interesting because we talk about financial literacy, but it's such a natural human thing that, you know, we solve problems that are right in front of us. Nobody's going to think 10, 20, 30 years into the future and think of kind of what are the bad things that could happen to me? And actually, this the behavioral science all supports this, that people just don't do this. Our human brain is just not meant to do this type of planning. So in a way, we can't blame people. But at the same time, retirement is such a funny thing where we're, you're leaving uh, the workforce. You can't make money anymore effectively. It's not like while you're working, if there's a problem, you can go back to work and make money. You're kind of stopped there. You're on a fixed income. And this can go on for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So now people are on a new path. And, and so they really do need to think kind of long term in a way that is really difficult to do and to start, start to really understand, well, if my spouse dies, what are my options? If, uh, if I become, if I can't go up and down my stairs anymore, what are my options? How much are these things going to cost? Do I have the money? Do I have the family to support me? So suddenly it's opening up all these conversations that, People don't really want to have, but we're kind of forced to have these types of conversations because of the nature of retirement. How much would it cost to get home care in your home that would be equivalent to what you would get in a nursing home, which uh, hopefully will be up to four hours a day, but it certainly isn't there at the moment? Yeah, so the I mean, this is all depends, of course. In the the research that we did, we kind of put a price tag of, of about three thousand dollars a month. Um, but that really depends. I mean, I'm in Halifax. Uh, there's rural areas where it's very hard um, to even get somebody to come to your home. So, of course, it all depends. Canada's a very vast and varied country, and each jurisdiction has its own advantages and disadvantages. But uh, in our report, we do price it at about three thousand dollars a month. And how much home care can people expect to get that's funded by the government? I mean, right now it's really seriously rationed. Yeah, and again, I think it also it kind of depends on your own jurisdiction and just the way the system works because uh, long-term care is a, is a provincial jurisdiction. So this is one area of study. Uh, people who kind of start this process, they know how difficult it is to navigate and from a researcher's perspective, to get data and numbers, it, it's just kind of like, um, you know, I'd like to call it a mess, and that's a nice way to say it. <laughs> There's not nice ways to say it. It's really hard to get the numbers and the data and to really understand um, kind of the, the varied, uh, you know, services people will be getting. But, yeah, it is very, very limited. Um, when we did look at kind of the best data for Ontario, which is the admissions data, so basically when people – go to become eligible for home care, what are they actually getting? And what we found was that um, for every four hours of care needs that people have, three of it is on average being done by their family and about one of them, uh, sorry, so about 75% is being done by the family and about 10% is being paid for privately. So that really only leaves about 15% of the hours being covered by the public system on average. Now, if it's $3,000 a month, that's $36,000 a year. Most people don't have that much money or a way to raise that much money in addition to all their other living expenses. One solution that I've been a huge advocate for is just to make Canadians more aware of the fact that uh, uh, one way to really boost their pension income is to delay their CPP. Uh, a lot of Canadians don't understand that they, if they wait from age 60 to age 70, 
still actually more than double that CPP. And again, um, the, the, it's, it's such a good financial strategy. And if you look over the long run, to give you an idea, uh, the average Canadian is losing about $100,000 in secure income by taking it at age 16 and age 70. The way we evaluate the options will suddenly look very different. And I gave the example of CPP delaying. If you only look over the next five to 10 years and you're 60, oh, yeah, it doesn't look very good to wait to 70 because you're not going to get benefits. But if you actually realize that most Canadians are going to live into their late 80s, into their 90s, then suddenly taking CPP is a, uh, later is a very good option. So this is why when it comes to retirement, we need to plan earlier, but we also really need to take that long-term perspective. Thanks a lot, Bonnie Jean McDonald. <laughs> You're welcome. That was Bonnie Jean McDonald of the National Institute on Aging. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, a leading cardiologist has a warning about new guidelines on low-dose aspirin. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. Less than two weeks ago, a U.S. expert panel said doctors should no longer routinely prescribe daily low-dose aspirin for most people who are at high risk for heart disease. That's because the risk of bleeding outweighs the benefit. But this only applies to people who have not had a cardiac event like a heart attack. That's why cardiologists here are worried this guideline could cause harm. I talked with Dr. Mike Farku, a cardiologist at the University Health Network. You are worried that these new guidelines regarding low-dose aspirin will cause confusion. Yes, I'm worried that, uh, you know, like anything else, things can be misinterpreted. Media reports um, talk about the this issue of low-dose aspirin, but really there's different kinds of patients taking aspirin, and we need to be very clear about that. What exactly is this guideline, and what is new about it? Well, this guideline is really one of primary prevention, meaning this pertains to folks that have never had a cardiovascular event, do not have known cardiovascular disease, blockages in their arteries, heart failure, or any other heart problem, who take aspirin purely to prevent an event from happening down the road. So they're taking it off the counter, of course, and they're taking it often without any advice from a physician, and they're over 60 years of age. And the guideline now stipulates that perhaps this is not the best approach, that only in the very high-risk patients uh, should folks be taking aspirin if they've not had an event. What is really clear is that, and what's, what must be emphasized, is those patients who've had a history of cardiovascular disease, a heart attack, a stroke, a bypass surgery, or are known blockages in their arteries, they need to continue to take aspirin. This guideline does not apply to them. Because I remember a time not that long ago when basically almost everyone was said, hey, take take a, a low-dose yeah. 81-milligram aspirin. Yeah. And you know, you know th- there's nothing wrong with that in the principle. We know that overall there is a lower risk of having a heart attack, a stroke, or an event if you take aspirin and you've not had an event before. 
The problem is that this is outweighed by the risk of bleeding. How do you do the risk-benefit analysis? What you're doing is, is reducing risk on one end and increasing the risk of bleeding on the other end. And when you take things into account in a risk-benefit equation, this guideline is saying that you shouldn't take aspirin routinely if you're over 60. Tell me a little more about the risk of bleeding. What happens? Well, bleeding can happen on multiple fronts. It usually happens in the gastrointestinal tract, in the stomach, where you have ulcers develop, because aspirin can be uh, hard on the stomach and on the, uh, on the gastrointestinal system. And you have a risk of bleeding, which is about 1% per year. But if you're you know, 60 years old and you live to be 85, by the time you're 85, you've got a 25% potential chance of having a major bleed. And these bleeds can be significant. They can be quite severe. And that's what the worry is here. You see, Olivia, it gets back to medicine, right? If I tell 100 people to take aspirin and I prevent five heart attacks, I don't know who, who I prevented the heart attack in, right? I really don't know as a doctor. I just know that I may have prevented five heart attacks in 100. But if I give a patient aspirin and they bleed, I know that I caused the bleed. So that's why it's not a one-to-one risk and benefit. You know, we have a, an axiom in medicine that says, do no harm. And the fact remains that we know if we give someone a therapy and they have a side effect or an adverse event, that we caused it. And that's why it's not a one-to-one ratio. This guideline, it's just a draft, correct? That's right. So what would happen next with it? Well, this would go to the national authorities in the United States. This is the United States Prevention Guideline, and it would be approved. It's almost certain to be approved. But the problem is that if people stop aspirin who should be on aspirin, this could have significant effects. So the media and the lay public needs to interpret this properly. That's the worry that we have, that this may send a message that aspirin isn't effective in patients who have cardiovascular disease. And if they stop it, we could have an onslaught of of major events going on in the next six to 12 months. The bottom line is you should talk to your doctor? Absolutely. Anything else you want to leave us with? It's all about continuing to maintain health. That's the key. Be active, watch your diet, and sleep well. Those are the keys. Thank you so much, Dr. Mike Farku. Take care. Bye-bye. My pleasure. That was Dr. Mike Farku, cardiologist at the University Health Network. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.